You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, welcome back to National Security Law Today. Quickly, before we jump in, we need your help. The People's Choice Podcast Awards are open from now until July 31st. It only takes two minutes to cast your nomination, and your vote makes a huge difference for our show. All the voting instructions are in the episode description. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, and here's Elisa. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Today, we're going to look back at the time of America's founding and one of many factors and people who appeared to support our new democracy while working against it and in their own self-interest. Now, our guest tonight is Howard W. Cox, author of American Traitor, General Wilkinson's Betrayal of the Republic and Escape from Justice. Mr. Cox is a former trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice, I believe, right? That's correct. (laughs) And in a trial attorney in the U.S. Army JAG Corps. He's also former staff counsel of the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations and former Assistant Inspector General for Investigations at the Central Intelligence Agency. Howard, thanks for coming in. Well, a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. All right, let's talk about this guy. Everybody thinks of Aaron Burr as being somebody who tried to upend our fledgling uh, democracy, but who was Wilkinson? James Wilkinson was the highest ranking federal official ever charged with being a spy for a foreign country. By 1798, he had become the commanding general of the U.S. Army, and during that period of time, he was also a spy for Spain. And to put that in context, that's like the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley being a paid Chinese agent. That's basically what Wilkin Wilkinson was in the late 1700s and early 1800s when he was the commanding general of the U.S. Army until he was yanked out of that position from his conduct in 1809. In that position, he was a spy for Spain. And the reason why Spain was important was if you take a look at the U.S. border back in the 1770s, 70s, 80s, 70s, 90s, we shared a border with two countries, Great Britain and Canada and Spain, which was everything west of the Mississippi and in Florida. And so it was obviously the Spanish were interested in what the United States was going to be doing as a new country. And Wilkinson filled the bill of of spying for them. He was also the co-conspirator with Aaron Burr. He was the primary witness against Burr, and he was the main reason why Burr never got convicted, because his odious conduct basically turned off everybody who had to deal with it. So he is probably the most highest ranking spy in the United States history that nobody knows about. Well, I think they will now. And yeah, we do always think of Aaron Burr because we also think of the case against Aaron Burr as being one where the classified information and specifically a letter was first discussed by the Supreme Court. Sort of a prequel, if you will, to SEPA was discussed in that opinion back in the day. But apparently the letter, which was an issue in that case, a classified letter of some kind, I'm sure you're going to explain later, had a little bit to do with Wilkinson. Absolutely. If you take a look at how Chief Justice John Marshall defined the crime of treason that is set forth in the Constitution, it was all based upon testimony provided by Wilkinson, both in pretrial proceedings, his illegal arrest of 
or co-conspirators without a warrant that got up to the Supreme Court and was thrown out by the Supreme Court, as well as the Burr trials in 1807 in Richmond, in which Burr was acquitted three separate times, in part based upon the lousy testimony provided by Wilkinson. And they were both kind of down there in the area that bordered the Spanish border, if you will, the, the new Spanish border. But let, let's talk about character traits, because there have been so many people that we have watched recently in the news. And recently, Hansen died, who was an FBI agent who was working for Russia. And then prior to that, years earlier and still sort of legendary was Aldrich Ames. And I guess the question becomes, what about Wilkinson in particular, what character traits made him so vulnerable or open to committing espionage? And how does he compare to modern examples of double agents willing to work against their country for often not that much money over a period of time? Well, as you know, when intelligence agencies such as the CIA and the FBI are looking for people who are spies, who will spy for us or trying to find people who are spying for someone else, they basically use the acronym MICE. There are four reasons why primarily people become spies, money, ideology, coercion, or ego. And so for Wilkinson, it was money and ego. He was, in, in intelligence terms, he was a walk-in. He approached the Spanish and said, I'll spy for you if you pay me, if you allow me to have a commercial leg up on my competitors when he was a civilian to sell goods through New Orleans. I also think I'm a lot smarter than the, the American commanders. He at one point calls most of the president's fools and idiots. And in his reaching out to the, uh, the Spanish, he says, you're the only people I can truly respect. So I want to work for you. And the Spanish recognized he was lying as well, but they recognized he would have been a useful tool. So basically, it was ego and money that caused them. If you take a look at some of the big spies in U.S. history, you know, for the most part, the Russians and the Chinese don't pay much money. There are some exceptions. Alter James is a good example. He earned over a million dollars. Robert Hansen from the Russians earned over a million dollars. Wilkinson, if you adjust for inflation, he also earned over a million dollars from the Spanish. So he ends up being one of the highest paid spies in United States history. Also, as part of his goal is, you know, why everybody, when you go back to the revolution, everybody knows about Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold at least had the benefit of being a great combat commander. Wilkinson wasn't even that. He was a poor general. The information he provided to the Spanish wasn't necessarily all that helpful. But he basically told the Spaniards, I am sitting with the president of the United States and the secretary of war. You give me your intelligence requirements and I'll go approach them and get that information and give it to you. And it wasn't very effective. But among the things he gave them was that the fact that, you know, President Jefferson wanted U.S. military explorations of the Louisiana Territory. We'll send out the Lewis and Clark expedition. We'll send out Zebulon Pike expedition. There was another expedition headed by a guy by the name of Freeman. And these people were all to feel around what was the border between the Louisiana Purchase and the Spanish border. And the Spanish didn't want them to, uh, to do that. So Wilkinson tipped the Spanish off on each of those expeditions so the Spanish could send out cavalry or turn on the Indians to either capture or kill those three American exploration exhibitions. So if you want to talk about damage to the national security, Wilkinson readily gave up those explorations in return for Spanish cash. And that's fascinating. And when you're talking about Meriwether Lewis in particular, he seemed for whatever reason to sort of target him more personally, it felt like when I was reading what you wrote about him. And also the other thing is, 
when you talk about intelligence or the damage that is caused by spies, this wasn't the only thing in terms of his just sort of disloyalty. It was not just these sort of higher end people, but he also subjected everyday soldiers to, you know, violence by giving up all sorts of information. In other words, a lot of people literally died because of what he was doing. Absolutely correct. And he didn't care. As long as he was getting paid, he really didn't care what damage that was done. And basically, you know, I use the term, he basically betrayed everyone he worked for, with, or near. The only infidelity uh, he doesn't seem to ever committed to us, he was honest to his wife during their relationship, but just about everybody else he cheated on. Wow. As far as we know, right? Yes. <laughs> Not to be cynical. Okay. Let's talk about this. It's Sometimes when I read about what was going on at the, the backstabbing, you know, the vying for power amongst people that are our so-called founding fathers, you have to wonder how it is we ever made it as far as we did. But when we think of persons who sort of engaged in an actual dismantling of the structured government, as opposed to sort of the Benedict Arnold betrayal, you kind of think of Burr by himself, at least I do. But you said that Wilkinson sort of joined Burr in this effort, but he wasn't the only one. Like this thing was actually kind of bigger than both of them, right? Well, and, and one of the things that history learning today still don't know exactly what was the purpose of the Burr conspiracy. And in my opinion, the reason why you can't really define it was he approached different people and told different people he was going to be doing different things and never allowed any of these other people to realize what was going on. For example, and some people he approached to include Andrew Jackson was someone who went along with Burr and Wilkinson. When Burr approached Andrew Jackson, he said, look, I'm going to take an expeditionary force of private citizens with the inherent approval of the U.S. government and seize Spanish colonies. And Andrew Jackson hated the Spanish, so he gladly went along with that particular part of the plan. He didn't realize that Burr was pitching to other people out west. Oh, and also I'm going to separate the Western states from the United States and join it with the conquered Spanish colonies and create a brand new country out of Western United States and Spain. And I'm going to be the head of that particular country. He even approached the Spanish and said, look, I'm planning to overthrow Thomas Jefferson. Would you give me money? I will overthrow Thomas Jefferson. So this contradictory pieces of it, and the only person who knew inherently what was going on was Aaron Burr. He had approached Wilkinson, who was the commanding general of the army, who was allegedly going to help Burr do this. And then when Wilkinson realized that, you know, maybe my bread is better buttered staying with the United States, Wilkinson turned Burr into Thomas Jefferson and was the primary witness for Thomas Jefferson in trying to go get Aaron Burr. Indeed, if we talk today, one of the subject goes around today is, quote, the weaponization of the Justice Department and things like that. That's exactly what happened with Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson wanted to get Aaron Burr and was more than willing to condone perjury, illegal arrests, as long as he could get evidence that would convict Burr. And it even got so bad as at one point, this is like a cheap political potboiler. Thomas Jefferson is president of the United States, along with James Madison, the secretary of state and the author of the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, is interrogating a federal prisoner illegally locked up in the Marine barracks in southeast Washington, D.C. You have the president of the United States interrogating a prisoner who was illegally detained and offers this person immunity if he will testify falsely against Aaron Burr. 
So it's an incredible example of the, quote, weaponization, unquote, of the Justice Department process for political ends. Jefferson provided tactics and direction to the U.S. attorney on how to try Burr, and it all failed basically because Wilkinson was a liar, and Aaron Burr was able to point out how duplicious Wilkinson was in the representations he made to Jefferson. That's fascinating. I'm trying to picture that. I wonder if he actually wore like the wig down to the interrogation. I'm going to assume that the Marine barracks were where they are today, somewhere near 8th yes, exactly. Street. And it was used as a pretrial detention facility where Wilkinson had arrested some co-conspirators eagerly without a warrant, without a judicial finding of probable cause. And that's why the Supreme Court released these people, because they had all been illegally detained by Wilkinson. These were incredible times. If you look at the writings and the letters and sort of the gratuitous fondness that they displayed for each other in their writings, and then you think about at the same time, coterminous at times, brutal and unaware behavior, it's really pretty amazing. This was obviously it were very, very different culture in the United States at that time, or the barely United States. I mean, but, also um, the law, as we understand it now, is we have 200 years of stare decisis, what these phrases mean. Back then, they were defining them really for the first time. And apparently Jefferson was ticked off. Oh, right? absolutely. I do. When Burr got acquitted the first time, he directly has to be tried the second time, but he got acquitted the second time. Jefferson had proposed a constitutional amendment that would allow the public to overturn judicial verdicts he didn't like. And obviously that didn't go anywhere, but that, he was that negative about the judiciary who weren't following his political will. And it's fascinating you say that Wilkinson turned him in, because I do remember reading a book about the trial of Aaron Burr. And I remember that when they did find him, which was somewhere down, I guess, Louisiana, that he looked pretty bad, right? He had you know some sort of a can tied around his waist. His hair was sort of Medusa. He was not in too good a shape at that moment. So I find all of this is really fascinating. I guess the thread or the line back to Wilkinson wasn't apparent to me until I got into your book. Now, the thing with Wilkinson and the thing I think that gets people kind of really irritated is when terrible people doing terrible things get away with it. And to be fair, nobody really did anything to Wilkinson that had any consequences during his lifetime. What failed that they couldn't catch him? Because as I read it, a lot of people knew what he was doing. It just wasn't such a good look for this struggling new democracy. But then second... Why didn't it work out that he ended up somewhere incarcerated, hung, whatever they did back then to suffer some meaningful penalty for his conduct? Well, as you correctly pointed, a number of people suspected that Wilkinson was under the pay of Spain. At some point, he had made enemies of this cash courier that was carrying money from the Spanish in New Orleans up to his headquarters in Cincinnati. They flipped the cash courier and he's going public saying, look, I did this on behalf of the Spanish and Wilkinson. I have correspondence that he provided. And Wilkinson contended this individual was a perjurer and he's all this correspondence of forgeries. And so part of it was Wilkinson was very effective in slapping down the few attempts that were made to hold him accountable. Washington didn't really understand how bad Wilkinson was. And at the time, we didn't have what we have now, professional organizations like the FBI and CIA to conduct intelligence or criminal investigations of espionage or counterintelligence. Those organizations didn't exist at the time. Federal law enforcement was basically U.S. Marshals and postal inspectors. So there wasn't anybody who was capable of doing these investigations. Secondly, you had congressional oversight. There were 
a number of congressional hearings that had taken place. But Congress even debated at that time, do we have the constitutional authority to conduct oversight hearings over the executive branch in the United States? That was still an uncertain characteristic of the Constitution. So they tentatively went forward. When they first went forward, Jefferson cut them off and basically created a sham military justice procedure that was only designed to do one thing, covering Wilkinson's tracks. And that was, in my opinion, the quid pro quo. Wilkinson would provide whatever testimony he needed to get Aaron Burr, and Jefferson would in turn protect Wilkinson by creating the sham military justice proceedings that basically quieted congressional concerns about Wilkinson. And so finally, when he was court-martialed in 1811, when I first started to write this book, I approached it as a trial attorney. How would I present the case against Wilkinson? What evidence was there? And the prosecution did a terrible job of presenting the evidence that was there. Wilkinson cross-examined the heck of out of every government witness that was there. He basically accused them of consorting with prostitutes, of being convicted perjurers, and the government prosecutor basically was supine in his approach and so as a result of that, plus the fact that Wilkinson was allowed to pick the charges, he wrote the charge seat, he helped pick the jury. So a week into the trial, the prosecutor is basically saying, look, the jury is all in this guy's favor. Why are we going forward with this? And repeatedly, you know, at that time, President Madison said, no, you must complete the trial. And the reason why was they wanted a judicial stamp of not guilty on Wilkinson to clear him from all this evidence of misconduct that was readily apparent. So that almost leads me to believe that he had something beyond what you even turned up on somebody. I can't dismiss that. I mean, if you take a look at it, Madison tried twice to court-martial him. He also failed a military campaign in the War of 1812. He was attempted to be court-martialed again at that one. Martin Van Buren was the original judge advocate who was going to be court-martialing Wilkinson in 1815. And Wilkinson had Martin Van Buren removed, containing that he had been illegally appointed. And so at that time, most of the other witnesses didn't even bother to show up to testify against Wilkinson, basically because all the army officers who were at that time were a pretty good crowd of good officers who hated Wilkinson. They all realized the war is over. There's going to be a downsizing. James Wilkinson is going to be removed from that. We don't need to get sucked into a court motion thing with Wilkinson. Well, that's a, an interesting and depressing thought. So systems of checks and balances failed. It's it's still my belief that there's yet another chapter to be written here. I feel like there has to be something even beyond what he had in terms of consorting with prostitutes, which I imagine, based on what I've read, was fairly common in that time. I mean, you're talking about people whose you know concept of morality included holding slaves, you know, engaging in duels, all sorts of things that we associate with sort of primitive morals and not a particularly developed brain. But one of the features of your book in your research that we find interesting in national security law today is that you also discuss sort of the impact of the economy and in particular trade on the strength of the Republic and the coalescing of the population behind Jefferson and other presidents. There was Shays Rebellion. There have been all kinds of things in that early period of the country where it does seem that the economy was driving loyalty among colonists and new Americans in terms of their ability to sort of cleave to the idea that this was going to be a Republic to which they owed any loyalty whatsoever. Talk a little bit about that, because I think that is not sufficiently taught in schools. We talk about taxes and so on, but 
trade embargoes, or as we would call them now, sanctions. If you could talk about how that affected sort of the loyalty and the wranglings and Jefferson's power. Sure. If you take a look at the, the run-up to the War of 1812, much of the economy of the United States was being affected by the fact that the British were underwriting Indian raids in the West and in the South. They were actively encouraging Native American tribes like Tecumseh in the West, the Creek Indians, the Cherokee Indians, that's to basically continue to harass militarily Western colonists and Southern colonists. On top of that, you had the British acts of impressment where they would kidnap American sailors at sea. Over 5,000 American sailors were impressed by the British uh, Navy in the run-up to the War of 1812. That's 5,000 armed kidnappings. At some point, the British are actually stopping American warships and prying alleged British sailors off of them. So the trouble was, by 1808, this had gotten so bad, Jefferson looked at, how can I respond? And the American army by the time of 1808 was basically a mess. It had gone through years and years of political purges. Hamilton and Adams purged all of the Jefferson supporters out of the army. When Jefferson was elected, he purged all the Federalists out of the army. So the military leadership, the military ability of the United States was pretty bad with James Wilkinson as the commanding general. And so Jefferson turned to economic approaches that he wanted to be able to say, look, you folks who are warring in Europe, Great Britain and France, you need to stop blockading us from trading. So we're going to have a counter blockade. Since we didn't have the Navy to be able to do that, we're going to embargo U.S. merchants, U.S. farmers. You're going to be prohibited to selling anything to belligerents in Europe or in Canada or in Florida. The European powers, Great Britain and its allies and France and its allies, really weren't affected by this embargo, but there was an unintended consequences. There were grave economic consequences to United States merchants and farmers who now lost their ability to sell goods to foreign markets. And many of the southern states like Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, they've relied on Spanish ports in Mobile and Pensacola to be able to get access to goods. They were all shut down. The United States could not, citizens couldn't go through those areas. Jefferson, in the last year of his administration, passed the Insurrection Act. The Insurrection Act allowed Thomas Jefferson to use the U.S. military on the border with Canada to prohibit trade with Canada. They were basically customs inspectors and would prohibit goods from coming in. So as a result of that, when we went into the War of 1812, there was not a unified support behind that. You had Jefferson and his party wanting to do it, but many Federalists representing some of the Eastern merchants classes didn't want to go to war with Great Britain. And as you know, there was the Hartford Convention in 1813, where there was a thought of some of these Federalist leaders taking states out of the Union. But the definite economic impact was the driver why we led up to the war and also basically was ineffective. Jefferson realized that his embargoes were in effect. Madison realized he wasn't. Going back to Wilkinson, you couldn't trade goods with these countries unless you got the presidential approval. Wilkinson got presidential approval to use U.S. ships to sell goods he owned to the Spanish. He used it to line his own pocket. We see some of this playing out right now, right, with sanctions on Russia, sanctions on China that are having a definite impact. I don't if you have a chance to look at the Financial Times of any given day, there's a discussion of which company and a friendly nation to the United States has suffered a consequence because of sanctions on Russia, sanctions on China, and sometimes retaliatory actions by both of those countries. So it's always fascinating to see this in a larger historical context. It's a great tool. 
It's not always effective in the way that we hope. We're living in a time, once again, of deep divisions in the United States. I recently talked to a Lincoln scholar who was talking about the differences in the United States in the run up to the Civil War. We're in a time right now where there are politicians, obviously, just as they were in that day, but running for short term gain because they're on a two, it's a two year election cycle. You've worked on the Hill. I mean, there it feels like the knives are always out. It's everybody's campaigning more or less constantly. Do you see parallels to today to what was happening back in Wilkinson's time? I mean, to a certain extent, yes. If if you go back to this is the, you know, the beginning of our lives under the Constitution was passed in 1789. So if you take a look at 30 years later, 1809, how well were those constitutional oversight mechanisms working when there was an allegation against an act of misconduct by a very, very, very senior executive official? And basically, you had, number one, is Congress an effective oversight mechanism? Much of the congressional oversight that took place then was riven by the same sort of political divisions we see today. The Democratic-Republican Party was not going to allow a record to be made against Jefferson or Madison for their acts of misconduct. And so, to a certain extent, congressional oversight was compromised because of the inherent political nature of what they were looking at. They were going after Thomas Jefferson's commanding general. Criminal justice process. We talk about today how effective is the criminal justice process and going after very senior executive officials. And part of the concern is, you know, as, as a former prosecutor, recognize that the grand jury process isn't really designed to tell a story to the American public as to what happened or what didn't happen. It's designed to prove evidence of a crime. And if the evidence gathered by a grand jury doesn't it, it conclusively establish a crime that the government intends to prosecute, all that evidence that's gathered really isn't going to go out to the general public and answer questions, has a crime indeed been committed by a senior government official? And that's exactly what happened then and to a certain extent happens today. To the extent that this is a military process, I think there remains concern, can the military police itself? And I think, you know, from my time, both working for over 10 years at the Defense Department, going after senior military officials and times that I've worked in the Justice Department, I think the Justice Department properly concludes these are people that need to be tried in federal civilian court. You really can't expect the military to go after its own senior leadership. And so that problem existed then, you know, and to a certain extent, I think, is today, which is part of the congressional attempts to take pieces of the military justice process out of the hands of commanders and put it in the hands of military lawyers to provide some degree of assurance that crimes will indeed be investigated and prosecuted. So to the extent that those were not truly effective mechanisms to put check or balances on Wilkinson 200 years ago, how much has it improved today? And I think that's an open question. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at the American justice system and do feel things like the penalties in the federal sentencing guidelines that would apply to what are sort of street crime, violent crime, and then the lower penalties that are very apparent in the criminal code and in the guidelines for white collar crime, things that we would associate with powerful, wealthy people rather than the average Joe. So do you see any other parallels? We've watched as a few generals over the last few years have sort of gotten off the rails, if you will, here in the United States. Do you draw any parallels to now in terms of the individuals that you have seen and their behaviors over the last decade? Some of these people who were senior military leaders of great honor 
Having been a former military, having worked in the Defense Department doing criminal investigation for over 10 years, I have an immense amount of respect for military officers who I think overwhelmingly are honest, dedicated public servants that will, given a hard choice, will make the hard choice on behalf of their country and at their own self-sacrifice. To the extent that, as I said at the beginning, overwhelmingly military officers are honest, you do have at times systematic collapses in the ethics of certain folks in the military. Part of the concern with Wilkinson is that the evidence was there if somebody wanted to get much of it, but he and the Spanish practiced pretty good tradecraft. They basically used ciphers, they used cutouts, they used cash couriers, and the United States was just incredibly ill-prepared to be able to pierce the lies that the Spanish and Wilkinson were more than willing to use to protect the activities of their intelligence agency. It was really good tradecraft practiced by Wilkinson and the Spanish and really poor counterintelligence capabilities by the United States. That's fascinating you say that because Washington himself used ciphers. So I find it interesting that they didn't seem to be able to crack the Spanish code. Well, they didn't even know about the existence of it. Most of the stuff about Wilkinson, a lot of people suspected it. The Spanish kept wonderful records of what they did. So every time that Wilkinson would swear an oath of loyalty to the Spanish, the Spanish kept a copy. Every time they paid him, they kept the pay records. And all that evidence was carefully hidden by the Spanish, was removed from anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, and basically hidden in Spanish archives, mostly in Spain, some in Cuba. And those archives weren't made available to American scholars until the late 1850s through the early 1900s. And it was only at that time was absolute proof established that Wilkinson was indeed a spy. Well, I appreciate listening to you talk about this. I appreciate the book that you have written. It's a pleasure. We will hyperlink in the notes to our podcast where people can find that book. And as I said, are you going to try another one? Are you completely done? If you talk to people, and this is the first time I've ever attempted to write a book, particularly a book that meets the standards of professional historians. I had to learn, you think blue booking is bad in in legal writing. Learn the Chicago style manual and the intricacies of the Chicago style manual, which is like 20 times larger than the blue book is. So I had to learn that. It had to go through a peer review process. You talk to authors and they talk about living a life with rejection letters. I got really, really lucky. I got it. My proposal was picked up the first time I tried it. I don't know if I want to break that record. So I think I may just retire from writing with batting a thousand. That sounds like a, a reasonable plan. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us tonight. Sure. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Our guest tonight has been Howard W. Cox, author of American Trader, General Wilk- Wilkinson's Betrayal of the Republican Escape from Justice. Please remember to subscribe to NSLT on your listening app of choice. And if you like us, rate us, give us five stars. Contact us with feedback. You can reach us on Twitter at ABANATSEC, or you can reach us by email the old-fashioned way at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Be sure to share this cast with a friend, have civilized discussion, remembering that American differences do nothing to advance the national security of the United States. And it's okay to share ideas with people that you don't agree with. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Potit, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.